0: You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of bookselling in the 21st century. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Before we begin, if you like what we're doing, there are a couple of ways to help us out. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show via Patreon. Finally, I'm excited to announce a cool partnership with Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to directly support independent bookstores. They make it easy for you to listen to more audiobooks at a great price, all while knowing you are helping your community thrive. Learn how to get your first month for 99 cents at bookstories.show. This week's conversation is with Daryl Holter, co-owner of Chevalier's Books in the Larchmont section of Los Angeles. Daryl is a fascinating individual. He's a professor, musician, activist and successful businessmen. We jumped around and talked about lots of topics, but the importance of books and book culture reared its head over and over. I put Daryl on the short list of most interesting men in the world. After listening, I think you'll agree. Here's our conversation.
1: I wanted to know what happened, and, and I used the coal mining industry and the miners' movement and the 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 intervention of the state and politics as a as a method of trying to understand that transition uh, and that became my first book the the battle for coal the politics of nationalization in France um, I, I was active with the the teaching assistant union and we organized the union of the TAs the first union in the country the first TA group to go on strike we won a strike we got a contract that had never been done before. And as I began to work on my dissertation, I started teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, uh, and there I got involved in uh, organizing the faculty union. Uh, I started with four people. I got it up to 79 the American Federation of Teachers from Washington D.C. rep came in and met with me and asked if I would take over the organizing for the entire state of Wisconsin. I agreed to do it. I needed the money. I was, you know, I had been a TA quite quite a long time, and I was, and I had a family, and so uh, I agreed to organize the faculty in Wisconsin. I built it up to about thirteen hundred members on all the on about about twelve campuses, and around that time. Again, I was still writing my dissertation. The leaders of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO asked me if I would come to work for them. I agreed to do it. I needed the money. I thought it was a good thing to do. Uh, And uh, I became the in-house intellectual for the labor movement in the state of Wisconsin. I did that. I started the Wisconsin Labor History Society. I started a monthly newspaper which I edited called Wisconsin Labor News. I was a lobbyist, the legislative uh, leader. Um, I does was. Does that active. newspaper
0: still exist today?
1: Yeah, it does. As far as I know, I haven't checked. For several years—been quite a few years—and mm-hmm. um, I, I did that, and I sort of built this career uh, of an academic career as well as a, a leader in the labor movement, and. From that, I was uh, recruited by the Institute of Industrial Relations at UCLA uh, for a job there. And my wife, uh, who was also a historian, uh, she came to uh, USC. So we came in 1991 to um, L.A. and I... Uh, worked as uh, at the Institute of Industrial Relations, doing research and also teaching in the History Department in the Graduate School of Management, teaching industrial relations. And then I, uh, I, I wrote uh, my second book on the labor movement in Wisconsin, and I did a lot of other art- scholarly articles and other things that you do when you're an academic. Sure. Uh, and I did that until 19... It's kind of a long story. I did that until 1995 when my father-in-law became ill with cancer, and he his businesses were struggling in downtown LA uh, and he was um, 79 years old.
0: I read about, that. I don't mean to cut you off, but I read about the, in, in particular, there was an incident, the LA riots is kind of around the time. Well, when, the Rodney
1: King, yeah, the, right. the Rodney King, not the Watts riots, but the Rodney King riots, all of that. Plus there was a recession in the early nineties. So the sum total of this for my father-in-law was that the businesses that he had on Figueroa, which were automobile dealerships were really uh, in trouble and not doing poorly and, you know, and not, doing well. And, uh, you know, that was, the the entire street was that way. It was very, very difficult. A lot of the businesses had closed, moved, were boarded up. And so I agreed to go on leave from UCLA to help out my father-in-law, and I basically used the organizing techniques I had used in my previous life uh, to organize the property owners into the business improvement district. 105 property owners organized into the business improvement district in March of 1998. Um, we We agreed to assess ourselves half a million dollars in tax to hire our own people to make the area clean and safe and good for investment so we didn't have to rely on the police. We didn't have to rely on the city to clean things up. We did it ourselves with our own money uh, and that paved the way for the revitalization of Figueroa uh, Street, about uh, uh, $3.5 billion worth of new investment. Um, the Staples Center, LA Live, all the stuff on Figueroa University, Gateway, which I built, um, Galen Center, all of that development on Figueroa happened because the property's owners organized into a business improvement district. And that made a huge, a huge difference.
0: Was that, was the organizing of the property owners that you sort of spearheaded, was that unique? Was there a model that you followed from from someplace else, from maybe some other city? Or was this something you came up with?
1: Well, by that time I had been recruited uh, by the Central City Association of downtown L.A. And so the leader of that, Carol Schatz, and I and, and some other business leaders in downtown went to the International Downtown Association meeting in, in, uh, in Miami. And there we learned how from other cities how to organize business improvement districts. We visited Denver, we visited New York, we came back and she built hers in downtown LA and I built mine on Figueroa. They both were approved by the city on the same day literally within minutes of each other and they both started and they're both functioning. Um, there are right now, well the last I counted, there are about 30 some business improvement districts in Los Angeles, probably 75 or so in the country, in the state, probably 3,000 in the in the country. These are the methods that central cities have used to revive Revitalize themselves in the last twenty-five years. Um, So, you know, I was busy working. I built up my father-in-law's little empire of automobile dealerships on Figueroa Street, from uh, five stores and about four hundred people to eight stores. I added more stores. Eight stores, a thousand employees. you know we were we went from selling about um 500 cars a month to selling about 2300 cars a month um i provided a lot of family supporting jobs a lot of people came to sure. work for me and they they never left um and so uh, you know, that's where I was when we decided to buy the bookstore. Um, I, 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 live in Hancock Park. Uh, I always buy my books at Chevalier's books. I have for years. Um, have you
0: been there since you moved to LA from Minnesota?
1: No, I, when I moved, when I moved to LA, uh, in 1991, I knew about Chevalier's cause it was near my house. So, uh, my wife and I, and mean my daughter, you know, daughters, we always went to Chevalier's and, uh, you know, a few years ago, I started noticing that the inventory was a lot lower, that some of the good people that worked there were no longer working there. And I, I ran into Bert Deichsler on the street on Larchmont, and I said, I'm going over to the store to, to g- get a book, but I know, I'm sure they won't have it. And their inventory is so bad. He said, yeah, they're, they're going out of business. And I said, yeah. And Did you
0: guys know each other separately from the yeah, store? Yeah,
1: we, we knew each other. I, I don't remember why. He's an attorney. And I, I reached that-
0: out to him first. I knew there were two owners, <clears> and I was able to find his email. And so it's it's not easy to find someone who's not involved in the day-to-day per se. So I don't know if you remember the genesis of this, but I emailed him and then he put me in touch with you. Yeah, Um, he
1: usually puts me in touch with (laughs) with people like you when these things come up, which is fine, Uh, which is okay, because, you know, I'm familiar with doing it. Uh, So, uh, but it was a a funny conversation we had. Uh, We we knew it was in trouble. And then Bert said, well, maybe we should buy the bookstore. And, And I said, yeah, just what I need is, you know, a bookstore. Right. Uh, and, As if retail isn't and enough I, And then I thought about it a little more and decided m- maybe we should. But actually, when I tell this story now and Bert tells it, Bert says it was his idea. So I don't know to this day whose idea it <laughs> first was. But whoever had the first idea was turned on by the other person, and then ultimately we ended up doing it anyway. Was it for sale? No, but we knew it was in trouble. And we uh, the, the owner was 95 years old. Phyllis Winthrop? Yeah, Phil, Phyllis was ninety five. She's you know ninety eight now or ninety nine, uh, and uh, she she wasn't trying to sell it, but it was clear it was going to die. And so, it, what
0: was it uh, in your in terms of just from, from a business standpoint, from a brass tax standpoint, was it rent? Was it a lack of customer walk ins? What was going on?
1: Well, was it I, timing? Was it- I, I, no, I I think well, I think all the problems that. That independent bookstores had it had, and the low, the the narrow margins that you have, uh, in, you know, between what you pay for and what you sell for is, is low. It's a difficult business in any case, um, f- made more difficult by the chains, by the by the large chains, uh, although they're less of a f- not much of a factor now. That's another that's another issue. Right. But certainly Amazon was was very, you know, made it very hard. And and basically, it, it yeah, we felt that it wasn't being managed as well as it could be, and it was hard for Phyllis, and and, uh, and she was losing good people, and it was just, you know, it was in down downward spiral. The rent wasn't particularly a big factor, because the rent was actually relatively low compared to some of the other rents on Larchmont Boulevard.
0: Was it being subsidized because it was a bookstore, and the community, or the landlord wanted it to be there? Or? Well,
1: the landlord did want it to be there, but wasn't subsidizing it as much as she just wasn't raising the rent for a lot of the tenants that were there, you know, and she recently died too and at, at age 100 and it was her father who had developed all of Larchmont on both sides of the block and owned it at one time but lost three quarters of it during the during the depression when the banks went under so she just recently died but she was still alive at the time so we had to negotiate with her and uh, w- w- with her, her representative an attorney, and we were able to, to negotiate to get the lease uh, and to, and then finally to, uh, to agree for Phyllis finally agreed to sell. Uh, and, and she did and we took it over.
0: Do you know, um, sh- she bought it from the original Mr. Chevalier, yes, correct? Yes. Do
1: you, do you know him? Or well, did you he, know he's him? not alive. No, right. no, but uh, when I did, but I when I did buy the, buy the store and when it came out in the neighborhood and people found out that we had bought the store, they were so thankful to us. And my next door neighbor, who was about 85, said to me, Daryl, I'm so glad you bought Chevalier's. We heard it was going to die and Joe Chevalier was a friend of mine. Um, Joe Chevalier started the bookstore as a book lending library which is something that people may not remember little lending libraries um, and, and, it, and it grew into a bookstore. It's, it's almost 80 years old. It is the oldest, as far as we know, continuously operating bookstore in LA. The neighborhood
0: that I live in in Silver Lake, there's a couple of houses that have little lending libraries outside of them and there's a plaque on the bottom of one that's thinking and, um, Joe Chevalier for kind of. Crewing, oh really? Yeah. Uh, I
1: didn't know. do did you live in Knuckle Park? In Silver Lake. Oh, Silver Lake. Okay.
0: Yeah. So he, he did kind of start that, and then also, it it's the oldest bookstore in LA. Is that is that actually?
1: That's my understanding. I've yeah. never heard of anyone. Who it's said a great it.
0: marketing tool, even if you know. Yeah. It's not, but I, well, uh, we
1: we we did re- we did the kind of research you could do. We looked in old phone books, and we did. Well, we couldn't find anything that was continually operating.
0: Okay. So you're the third owner in the lineage,
1: correct? Yes. Okay.
0: So, what does a typical day look like for you? Um, you're not involved in the day-to-day, so I guess where I'm going with this is it kind of goes back to your other life. Where do you spend most of your time? What, what business? Uh,
1: well, I, st- I start in uh, the, the Petroleum Building downtown, which is an old historic building that was built by the Doheny family, the people that discovered oil uh, on Olympic and Flower Street. And I start there and I work on uh, property property management issues because I'm managing the, the properties, the 27 acres of property that run down Figueroa between downtown and USC. And so I usually work there on property management issues and any other things that are going on. And in the afternoons, um, I go down to Felix Chevrolet, which is the one dealership that we've retained in our group. We sold seven of them. Them. Iconic. And, and, yes, I, we kept the iconic one, which is the one where we started, and it's the one that's actually the, in some ways, the most difficult. It's the only domestic in the group that we sold. And the I read
0: s- that the Chevrolet corporate at one point was trying to get it into the suburbs during during that time around the riots. Is that
1: well? What happened was this: it was kind of interesting. I, I, as I started to reorganize my father in law's businesses, uh, and I started becoming known for some of the things I was doing, the President of USC Stephen Sample asked me to come and have lunch with him, which was nice. I didn't really know Steve at until then. And we had lunch together, and he said, "You know, Daryl, we've got a real problem. There's trustees of the university who are so freaked out by the neighborhood and what's going on down here that we, you know some trustees want to want us to do what Pepperdine did was you know, Pepperdine used to be on Vermont Avenue in South l a and it Move to Malibu. Oh wow! I didn't and know that. some people want to do a Pepperdine, and other people want us to move to Orange County, and I want to try to stay here. And you know, this is a real problem for me. And I said, "Well, Steve, I got a letter on my desk from General Motors that said that based on the incidents of crime and the average household income around Felix Chevrolet, we should probably close it and move it to the suburbs." And I said, "I got a friend that I see when I run in the morning, uh, Jim Powell, who runs a natural history museum in Exposition Park, and he said that his their study they did this is in 1997." The study they did showed that in 2001 they should close the doors because no one's going to come. I said, we're all in the same boat. And Steve said, what can we do about it? And I said, I don't know. Let me think about it. And that's when I did my research and came up with the business improvement district model. And then I went out and, and did it and organized it. I had help from USC. But that's really, it, it came out of that situation. We were kind of all in the same boat. If the community, if the if the businesses and the, and the institutions and the colleges and all the other things in Figueroa Corridor If they didn't unite and and find a way to organize, they were never going to get out of the hole. And the fact is, by organizing, by getting the first meeting I had with all these property owners was pretty funny. They said, I I said, we got a problem. We got to change it. We got to do something to change it. And they said, what are we going to do? And I said, we're going to raise all of our taxes. And they said, the hell we are. It's the last thing in the world we want is to raise our taxes. And I said, cool down. Let me explain to you. I wanted to get your attention. What we're going to do is we're going to raise our taxes, but we're going to use the money our money not the politicians money not the mayor's money nobody's money our money we're going to create our own plan that we agree to and we're going to make, we're going to make we're going to hire our own people to make it clean and safe and good for investment to come back in and they said really? You think that'll work? And I said, I don't know, but let's try it. So we did. And it did. Can you share with listeners what, uh, so what
0: you did in that corridor for those people that don't know LA, um, it, uh, Figueroa comes right into the heart of downtown Los Angeles and it's uh, where the Staples Center is now. How much of an impact did what you did have on the NBA um, and the other sports leagues um, in America have on putting the Staples Center there was that did that factor into the equation at all? Well, yeah,
1: because I mean they they did they did the Staples Center. They started working on it in uh, in ninety nine or two thousand, and we had organized the bid. And in fact, uh, Tim Lewicki, who was the head of Anschutz yeah. Entertainment Group, you know, I took him in a ride and and down down Figueroa, and I said, Why would you want to stay out uh, in, in Inglewood? You can come downtown. Downtown is going to explode in the next twenty twenty five years, and it's got it has huge potential and 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 I said you know that's why I'm I'm willing to build a new Mercedes Benz a new Porsche a new Audi a new Volkswagen I'm willing to to, to pump millions of dollars into these new facilities in this area because this in downtown LA is going to explode and it's going to be full of people with good demographics and it's going to be good you know for business and for everybody and instead of having just you know poor 15,000 really poor people living in the missions you're going to have a, a you know an entire uh, a wide spectrum of people that are going to come into downtown and it's going to change
0: fascinating thank you for getting into that um out of all your business interests, uh, I, one of the things that I was wondering was, is there a business baby of yours, like your number one priority?
1: Well, well, in the, in the, of course, the businesses we have now have gone from eight dealerships to only one dealership. I've got to get this Chevrolet dealership uh, rolling. We're doing a lot better. Uh, when I was in charge of eight of them, it was kind of hard to put all my attention on one. Sure, uh, I had 1,000 employees, and now I've got about 110 there. Um, How is the Bolt selling? Oh, the bolts selling we just need more, get, yeah get more we'll sell more. the volt sells well too um we're we're doing we're doing a lot better we're we're uh we're g- this is the oldest automobile dealership in l a by the way right. uh and uh this this has uh uh so you know in terms of my my efforts. I put more efforts into Felix Chevrolet than I do uh, in the in the bookstore. The bookstore, um, basically, I go to work before the bookstore opens, and I don't <laughs> get and I don't get home from work until the bookstore is closed. closed. So I never go there during the week. I go in on the weekends and sign checks. I communicate with my managers via email and phone calls, and I check my report. I check the reports every night. I know the sales. I know all the sales. I know exactly where we are at every. A step of the way. So I know what's going on. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm really proud of the bookstore and the way we've been able to, to, and we've really only stabilized. We're not really making money. We're, we're, you know, we're slightly in in the black, but very slightly and it's a hard it's it's. I said it's a hard business
0: absolutely the, I've done about maybe about 20 of these now and I've talked to big bookstores and small bookstores all across the country and, and, and in your situation you're kind of almost in a way propping it up um, and for most for most owners and operators it's a it's it's a break even proposition at best but I want to talk about the, the business uh, itself mm-hmm. um, or I guess um, uh, from, we'll start macro then we'll go micro the trend is that more bookstores have been opening across the country instead of closing what's your take on that what's happening and how how have they been able to buck the trend and prove the prognosticators wrong?
1: Well, what I would say about that is it's it's, it's one of these interesting statistics. You know, more our opening than our closing sounds, sounds, you know, really optimistic and pretty good. But that's just a slight, you know, that's just a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. And I'm an historian. And when we want to look at a particular issue, uh, we end up looking... F- or a particular issue, a problem, a question, we look for the origins and the sources of that, and we go back and we start pushing our way back in time. So I can't look at it any other way. I would say that's a very recent phenomenon, but I think it it, it, it flows out of, uh, out of other trends that took place, and I'll back up on those trends. There was a time there were a lot of independent bookstores. There was a time when bookstores like Borders, which started out as a university uh, uh, bookstore uh, at uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, that became a chain. Uh, Barnes and Noble uh, came on the scene. You had chain stores. You had Walden Books. You had ch- store uh, bookstores going up. Uh, co- kind of corporate national chains going up into uh, into uh, malls all across the country. And when, when they came, they knocked out a lot of the independent bookstores, a whole bunch of them in, in L.A. that I remember when I first moved here, and a lot of them that I remember from the other towns that I lived. And so the chains knocked out a lot of independent bookstores. However, some were able to stay. Some were, were, were stabilized. Then Amazon came along, and Amazon wiped out uh, a lot of the independent bookstores and it also but it also over time wiped out all the chains and only barnes and nobles is left and they're even struggling
0: is amazon on your radar or are you pretty much whatever at this point
1: they're on our radar in the sense that we're sort of the anti-amazon so what you have now, if you if you if you take a large look at the, at, at what's happened now, the demise uh, the the initial demise of the of the independent bookstores meant that the only ones that were able to survive against the chains were ones that were relatively stable and they were strong enough to survive. When Amazon came along, some of those independent bookstores went under, but some of them were able to hold on. Chevaliers was one of them, and you can you can cite four or five of them in the L.A. region that were able to hang on. Now you have it. Another, another different situation, which is why this phenomenon that you described... Occurred, I think. What you have now is Amazon has wiped out the chains. Now there's all there is is Amazon on the one hand and in, independent bookstores on the other hand.
0: There's and, nothing in the middle.
1: There's nothing in the middle. There's no mediating. There's nothing. There's nothing at all. So now customers can make make a choice. What do I want to do? I want this book really badly. I want to pay the least amount and I want it to l- deliver it to my house. Okay, that's one person. You know, that, and a lot of people are going to want that. Other people are going to say, I like to go down to the local bookstore. I like I like to uh, I like to hold the book and pick it up in my hand. I like to talk to the booksellers and see what they recommend. You know, I like the experience of sitting around in the bookstore and buying a book and going to the coffee shop. Pete's next door, having coffee and I like this experience. I like to take my kids there. I like it that my kids go on Saturday morning and listen to b- books being read, and on Sunday morning to, for for kids. I, I like the fact that Chevaliers brings in authors, like we did last night and the night before, brings in authors to books, and meet the customers. You know, I like the fact that that the, the bookstore is part of my community. I made an analysis before I bought the store. I made an analysis of uh, what I could base it on, what I could read. And I came up with three elements that were needed to have a successful independent bookstore in the era of Amazon. Number one, foot traffic. People have to be able to walk in. Otherwise, they might as well just buy on Amazon. They've got to walk in. Uh, uh, secondly, good demographics. You need to have people that live around you that are interested in books. In our, in our case, we have people who are in the industry. We have academics. We have political leaders like the mayor and other people. We have uh, people that are in writers and all kinds of writers sure. and how many people aren't writers in L.A. or actors. And so, we have a good good demographics. And the final element, I think, that is needed is something which we have which is a heritage a background, uh, a context for people that people know who we are, just like my next door neighbor, uh, and all of those things, uh, those three elements. If you can put them together, I think you have you have a chance to to succeed, and and that's what we try to try to cultivate.
0: You know, one of the bookstores up in San Francisco, Green Apple, they were um, the subject of a MBA case study, and one of they, they found four things. I'm not going to remember the fourth one; it might come to me. But three of the things that you said were the were like the core. <laughs> reasons why it should well, exist. And, you know, from my standpoint, my cohort in my age group, I have a, I have a small child, a four-year-old, and another one uh, much smaller. We want our neighborhoods that we live in and pay property taxes into to be walkable and to have places we can go. And uh, that's the MO behind this podcast is uh, one of the MOs is uh, reminding people that, yeah, there are many ways to do these easy transactions online, these instantaneous, you know, you can have a hot meal delivered at your door at 6.02 p.m. If that's what you tell it, that's what you tell the technology to do for you. But at the end of the day, if there's no place to go and there's nothing to do, then what is our society? I'm going to use a word I got from one of the write-ups on on your store, uh, which was this idea of an intellectual. Infrastructure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's are you my, responsible for that? Yes, that's okay. my term, and I was going to, I was going to lay it on you. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. The, the, uh, what, what I, what I, that's right. I mean, let me give you an example. We're not too far from the Sixth Avenue Bridge. Right. the new one they're building right there. okay there it is okay and I used to hang around that area because when I first moved here I, we lived in a duplex and I couldn't really play my electric guitar very much so I had a friend who was an artist that had a loft and we made. I made a deal with him that I could come by by giving him advance notice and play my electric guitar there so I, I, I used to come over into this area uh, and not too far from there uh, and so the 6th Avenue Bridge why do I bring it up well we, we built we're, we're building the 6th Avenue Bridge before we built it we had an analysis of it we did a cost benefit analysis we said that it's going to cost us x amount of money but it's going to move x number of cars and pedestrians and bikes across the street during a period of time and that's going to be that's going to make why it's valuable so we know what it's going to cost but we know what the benefits are going to be well that's a piece of infrastructure that bridge What about intellectual infrastructure? What about that? Um, How how do we measure it? I'm not sure, but I know that my customers like Chevalier's whenever I introduce an author, whenever I was... I was signing books uh, at the book fair, my Woody Guthrie book, uh, this past weekend. And I talked to a lot of people that love Chevaliers. And I think that uh, I think a lot of people do get it, the intellectual infrastructure. I mean, what's more important than having a place to go to share ideas with people? What's What's more important than having a a, a, a popular space, popular in a sense where people go, a popular space where people can gather to discuss things? It's part of our democracy. It's part It's part of the free press. It's, it's part of all the things that we need to put an emphasis these days when, when frankly, a lot of our institutions are under attack and, uh, frankly, when there are people who are very interested in turning our democracy into an authoritarian uh, uh, state uh, and when the checks and balances don't really seem to be balancing very well, we have some real problems. Independent bookstores and intellectual infrastructure is are elements of our of our economy and society that we need to defend. Yeah.
0: You know, and it really hits home, actually, for a lot of people when you when they have young families, when they have children and they're they're looking for places to take them. Um, and when I was growing up there were bookstores everywhere and now it's a little bit but I grew up in a small suburb uh, I didn't grow up in a big city here we have a, in Los Angeles and in other big cities across the country you have more options but it really it really becomes a thing when you look around and there's no place to go in your neighborhood um, so some of these stores so again and you maybe you can give me a little bit of a history lesson but there are some of these independent stores that have come back that are that are, I won't. I don't want to use the word thriving but they're, they're, they're in the black and they're even uh, having the confidence to expand a little so they're becoming these mini chains there's several of them there's one there's a chain in seattle there's a couple in brooklyn um there's one in denver now um is is expansion something that you're thinking about for this particular business like
1: chevalier's is there a chevalier's brand outside of larchmont or i haven't really thought too much about that but i can i can tell you because from the business businesses that i ran in with automobile dealerships, I can tell you something about this idea of expanding. When you do have the model down, when it's, when it's going well, when it's working well, then you know how to do it. And when you know how to do it, you can replicate it and when you replicate it and you ha- you go from one store to two stores you can gain some economies of scale you can centralize your inventory you can centralize your IT department your HR department your 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 benefit all the things that you have to that you have to pay for you can you can do more that's why automobile dealerships which is the current thing I'm researching now is a history of automobile dealerships in L.A. from 1900 to 1930. So I'm, <laughs> I'm heavily involved in that when I'm not doing my other stuff. But, you know, what was that for a book? Yeah, eventually it'll be a book, I think. Um, so what happened? What happened is that eventually, automobile dealerships were all run by like one guy had a dealership and he passed it on to his kid, and it was in the family and all that. But then, and my father-in-law did this. He started with Felix Chevrolet, and then he got a Mercedes dealership, and then a Datsun, which became Nissan. As other, as other dealerships closed in the Figueroa corridor and moved out to the suburbs my father-in-law bought up the land in the 1960s and 1970s and then i built the new stores on that land when you when you know how to do something when you know how to run a, in a particular industry it's a lot easier to replicate it and do it again and then you gain some economies of scale and and that's probably what you're seeing uh, going on right now some of the bookstores i think Romans owns I mean, I think they... I they don't th- book suit. I think, yeah, I know. But I also think they own the land under. This is another element. Of course. If, if you yeah. own the land, you're in a better shape. All of the dealerships that we had, we owned the land underneath them.
0: I talked to Mitchell Kaplan. He owns Books and Books in Miami. And that was kind of his, um, I, I was going to ask you a question about, give, it, give advice to someone who wants to start a bookstore now, but you basically just gave the recipe. Um, he basically said, you've got a hedge. It's a cutthroat
1: <laughs> Yeah, so, so, buying, so having the land is really important. If you don't have the land, it's a lot harder. Yeah. doesn't mean it's impossible. We don't own the land, but it's 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 a lot harder now. The other thing I would say is that uh, if 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 you're an owner and you own a bunch of the a a big deal of a, a good deal of the property in a particular area like like Larchmont, you may you may very well want to have a bookstore there. Uh, you may want to have a bookstore more than you know another restaurant you may want to have a bookstore there you know than another t-shirt shop
0: or a cell phone retailer yeah yeah yeah.
1: you know and so there are reasons why and and that's why in some cases um, landlords will even subsidize or or give a a break on rent the the fact is and I don't want to be unfair to restaurant owners because they have it tough too, but I do know enough about retail uh, rents and restaurants pay a lot more than bookstores and and it's probably going to be that way.
0: Well, that was the story with the last bookstore. Josh Spencer, he's the owner. Um, and we talked a couple of weeks ago. And it's 22 23,000 square feet of selling space. And he, he had he has a landlord that wanted that bookstore to be there. So that a little bit of it is a dash of luck for someone who doesn't have an entrenched so, brand. So we
1: have about less than ten percent of that. So th- that's right. I mean, for us, space is really critical. Yeah, um, space is critical because what what really what really hurts a bookstore is what we what I would call a lost sale. A lost sale is when someone comes in and they say, "Do you have such and such a book?" and and we check our inventory, no, we don't have it, but we can order it for you. Well, some people will order it, but, and many of our loyal customers will just order it right away. Sure. But many other people won't, and that, we regard that as a lost sale. The only uh, hedge against a lost sale is to have that book on the shelf. The only way you can have that book on the shelf is if you have uh, you know all your books uh, not facing out <laughs> like the Amazon bookstores sure. do. We can't afford to do that. No, we, have to, we have to put them all next to each other and squeeze in as many as we can. We can. When I first, when we first took over the store, I was looking at the inventory, and in the classics section, there was a book that we all know called *Gone with the Wind*, which is a which is about two inches thick, there were five copies of it. They were all sitting there. This is something that would have to change. We need one copy. We don't need five. And when we take away the other four, however many were there, we've got space for a lot more books, more titles. A broader inventory is what we need to survive uh, against, uh, against lost sales. And so space is absolutely critical. We never have enough space. We're always jammed in, and, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge
0: would you like to see any changes within the book industry wholesale changes
1: well i don't know too much about the industry but i know a little bit there is a kind of a crisis uh, in terms of i think the way a lot of people in the industry think academic presses for example have i would say a real problem um Academic materials, which I've written, of course, um, many a lot of my material is a, a more of an academic na- nature. University presses um, are coming out with a lot of stuff, but the only people that historically are going to buy it are other specialists that are into that field.
0: And their distribution isn't typically in in bookstores like yours, right? They're, they're, no, it's it's through no, to it's, students. It's,
1: it's libraries yeah. basically because most most of what academics write aren't textbooks. Mostly what they write are specialized monographs that that are, are all original research. Well, supposed to be original research, <laughs> and uh, and 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 what happens is that um, it uh, the they, they the academics have to produce these books because they have to publish or they can't get tenure. They need job security. They need to publish these books. But uh, you know the it used to be that. You know, you would ask the publisher of your academic book, you know, how many are you going to print? And they say, well, we're going to print, you know, 500. Why 500? Well, because there's there's 325 libraries and the rest, you know, will sell over time interesting and now many of these libraries are emptying out their books they're going they're going digital. digital and so that's going to be a challenge for that particular segment of the of the book publishing uh, uh, industry there there are there is a trend among younger people i think to want to have a book kids like to have books it sure. seems polling of children which there actually is uh, show that they do like to have books um I, you know i always i i think that there are always is going to be a, a segment, I don't know how large it will be, that will want to have the books themselves and will want to hold on to them and want to read them. And when they're reading and they want to refer to something 10 pages back, they want to go back and find it. It's um, a great
0: way to go analog, to force yourself to go analog, just kind of like having a good forced savings account. You know, when you put money away, it's like a way to like be disciplined. This is a way to discipline your time. And as a parent, you want your kid to get away from all the distractions. And a book is a great... It's one of the best technologies to do that still.
1: Good point. I remember my, my, my second daughter, uh, the first bookstore I went to was when we were, uh, we were uh, doing research. Well, we, we were teaching where we were, well, we were on a special thing in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, my wife and I. And I took her to Borders Book and she bought her first two, two books there.
0: What was your favorite bookstore um, or what is your favorite bookstore that's not your own?
1: City Lights in San Francisco. I go, I go there whenever I'm there, and I go there and I buy a book up on the top floor where I have all the Beat Generation stuff, and I take it over to Vesuvio's across the street, the bar on Jack Kerouac Alley, uh, and, and I read it. I, I have trouble finding stuff I haven't already read, but I can usually find some Beat Poet or Beat Writer that I didn't know about or or that particular book or short stories I haven't or poems I hadn't read, and every time I go to Frisco, I do that.
0: Uh, what are you reading at the moment?
1: Uh, well, I've been reading uh, a number of things lately. I've been reading mostly about automobiles in the in the first decade of the twentieth century uh, because of this research project I'm working on. So I've got you know probably about twenty five uh, books that I've put together that I'm I'm going through, as well as my archival material. So I've I I I, you know, I haven't been reading as much as of a lot of the things that I usually would read. In terms of fiction, I would read um, a, a lot of, uh, I, I like a lot of L.A. Noir stuff, and I like Steph Cha, who does L.A. Noir from a Korean point of view, and she comes into our store. In fact, we're doing independent bookstore. I think her and I are there at the same time on Saturday at four at Chevalier's. Um, I, I like to read, um, I've read everything in English that Simone de Beauvoir wrote. Um, I'm, I've always really liked her. Um, I, I read uh, all of Alan First's, uh, a book's all about uh, uh, Europe in the 1930s. Um, and so th- that's, those are sorts of the things that I, I read in, 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 in fiction. Um, but I have been reading more about the automobile retail industry and how it was built in Los Angeles uh, in the first 30 years of the 20th century. Interesting.
0: Are, are there any writers out there that
1: you'd like to mention that you should, think should be getting more
0: attention? The next Zadie Smith, for example, or you know the next.
1: Well, I, you know, I I mentioned Steph Cha, and I think she's she's a good example of, of younger uh, you know writers that are are quite good, and she's she's moving from the L.A. Noir into uh, other types of things too, uh, and I think I think she's really a good writer. I like David Ulan, who uh, did this. Uh, has written a number of, of things, but who, who did a very nice uh, a book called Sidewalking about walking around in L.A., and he's a former uh, uh, editor of the uh, L.A. Times uh, book review section, so I like his work as well.
0: Complete the sentence for me. Los Angeles is...
1: Los Angeles is becoming a city of neighborhoods. I think that, I think, just as you said, I mean, you put your finger on it, I think people like to be able to walk around their area. Uh, I think they're looking for sustainability. They're looking for a neighborhood that can uh, be a nice place for them to raise their kids. I think they are also tending to get more involved in their own communities. The Business Improvement District is an example of that, but neighborhood councils, for the most part, in many cases, can be Useful for that, so I think L.A. is becoming. It's not yet that way, but I think it's becoming a city of neighborhoods.
0: Well said. What book have you recommended the most over the years?
1: Well, I've recommended a lot of. I've recommended On the Road by Jack Kerouac to a lot of people, uh, but I have to say on that that after I've recommended to them, after I've recommended it to them, I've also told them that the best the best way to read that book is to actually go read the actual scroll that it was typed on, uh, which is actually much better than, than the edited book. It was edited several times by the publishers because it was pretty unwieldy but actually the scroll which you can buy not you, you won't buy the scroll but you buy a book that is a copy of the scroll and the scroll is, is actually better so I've, I've recommended that to a lot of people another one that I've recommended to a lot of people though that I think most people don't know about is is a book by Simone de Beauvoir that she wrote called America Day by Day uh, which talks about her tour in America from 1947-48 when she came here and traveled all around the country uh, and and um you know kept a daily uh, chronicle of what she saw in America and i think that's a really important book because you know we see america because we live here and we see the rest of the world through our own lens of being in america and we really can um uh, f- learn have a lot of va- find a lot of value in other people's perception of us, and you see a lot of that in Simone de Beauvoir. Her ch- her sections on L.A. Are, are really really pretty critical. She was not she found it hard to find the center of the city. She didn't understand that we didn't have a metro system. <laughs> she she you know she had a lot of questions about those the, questions still exist today they, for they a lot of do. people. They do they do are they're vital questions.
0: Finally, uh, last but not least, what's in your ideal sandwich?
1: I, I, well, let me think about that a little. Uh, I don't have sandwiches too often, but I suppose I would say uh, that I, I would like a turkey sandwich with uh, uh, Ortega peppers on it, with lettuce and mayonnaise, and, and some Dijon mustard. Daryl, thanks so much for being here. Okay, it's good to be here. A lot of fun.
0: I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles.